0: Good morning and welcome to Rising. I'm Robbie Suave and I'm glad to be joined again by Brianna Joy Gray who has returned to us. I'm back
1: one wisdom tooth short. (laughs) But (laughs) I am
0: back. So that's what I wondered if you were going to admit why you were gone. Yes,
1: I'm I'm going to reveal that very sensitive piece of (laughs) medical information that they took one of my wisdom teeth. It's my first one that they've ever extracted. Been, I have
0: all mine still.
1: My my skeptical brain, my, my conspiracy theory is that uh, wisdom teeth removal is a scam. Those dentists just want to take it and bill you for it, um, but they finally got me on one of them. I don't feel any better.
0: <laughs> you also <laughs> revealed inadvertently that you too were a fan of the late aughts show Heroes, so we were just recapping that. Uh, a, a great show that quickly collapsed into totally incoherent storytelling. Yes, um, much like this. No, we were, both, <laughs>
1: we were joking about how it, it, it speaks to the value of writers, generally speaking. Yes, you need
0: I, to have writing staff.
1: I'm going to have him on the, the Strikers picket line out in California any, any day now.
0: Any day now. All right, what are we talking about? <laughs>
1: All right. Well, Robbie, the White House is reportedly extremely upset with The New York Times over the publication's coverage of President Biden's age and mental acuity. Times publisher A.G. Sulzberger said in a recent interview, quote, We are not anyone's opposition, and we're not anyone's lapdog. We are going to continue to report fully and fairly, not just on Donald Trump, but also on President Joe Biden. He is a historically unpopular incumbent and the oldest man to ever hold this office. We've reported on both of those realities extensively, and the White House has been extremely upset about it. Mm. Solzberger's pushback comes as a frustrated White House apparently sent a letter to the press corps skewering coverage of Biden's handling of classified files. CNN's Oliver Darcy reports that spokesman Ian Sams wagged his finger at journalists, writing, many outlets have reported striking inaccuracies that misrepresent special counsel Robert Hur's reports, conclusions about the president, and reporters in the White House briefing room have asked questions that include false content or are based on false premises.
0: Hmm. Well, Axios reports that Biden staffers are hoping the upcoming State of the Union address will be a public reset moment for the president to hopefully neutralize swirling chatter about his stamina, his leadership, his age. Biden is set to take the podium on March 7th. So,
1: the the irony here is that, frankly, yes, there have been, I I think, a surprising number of articles that acknowledge that Biden's age is a problem. Yeah, the floodgates have broken. But that is after literally years of denying that there was anything to see here at all. So to now be complaining about the fact that The New York Times is finally doing its job in this limited respect really demonstrates how much fealty the White House expects from the liberal papers of record
0: absolutely they expect I think they specifically expected from Ezra Klein you know center-left progressive intellectual writer for the New York Times who is is one of the I think better known well-read especially in elite circles um, uh, kind of hype man for yeah. Obama and now for Biden and he writing a, a You know, still very kind to Biden, still very showering him with praise, but frankly, uh, probing the question of age to a much greater extent than clearly the Biden White House is comfortable with. I think it's that kind of thing happening that has them so alarmed. And I I, I read, listened to the whole Ezra Klein thing on this, and he's you know just again pointing out what everyone has already noticed, what two thirds of Americans, including most Democrats, already intuitively feel, which is that this guy is very old and he's showing it increasingly in public appearances. So. So it will be interesting to see if the State of the Union does supply any kind of reset to that idea. In past State of the Unions, I think he has performed pretty well um, at—I I think even you said, liked the amount of reassurance he gave on some kind of, like, key labor points or not cutting entitlements, mm-hmm. where he kind of made the Republicans admit that they were too afraid to yeah. touch those. Um, of course, it's not— you know, it's just a speech, he reads it, he doesn't have to do any kind of impromptu line delivery or cognitive thinking, it's not adversarial whatsoever, it's it's a room of people cheering for him every five words. Yeah. So I don't know that it's the most rigorous test or will put people at ease.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, we're certainly gonna get a news cycle from a largely flattering liberal media that says, he has reassured the public. He demonstrated his ability to, to lead, when, to your point, all he will have done is demonstrated his ability to read. But they'll get a little bit of a news cycle hype out sure. of it. But the problem is, this these concerns have been extant since the beginning of his 2020 campaign. The only thing that's new here is that media has finally been forced to acknowledge this reality. And force is maybe not even the right word. I mean, maybe frankly it is because it's a slow news day that they decided mm-hmm. to finally break the dam, and not out of any kind of matter of principle. But the point of fact well, is can that he it-
0: utterly lose his train of thought so obviously right, right. in front of them so many times before. Right. I think the the inner kind of news right headline seeker overtakes them, you know, <laughs> right. uh, uh, and go. What's going on and here, and the Joe? The Hurt
1: Report. I mean, I, I take I take the point that there are characterizations of the Hurt Report that sometimes are maximalist. I get that. But at the end of the day, you have, whether it's politically motivated or not, now the president basically being absolved of accusations of a not unserious crime precisely because he seems to be too forgetful to have accountability in this context. By the way, we don't need that report to confirm what our eyes have been telling us (laughs) again for years. And the fact—you brought up the the Ezra Klein piece specifically—he was so kind and gentle to Biden as he was making this case. He's a great president. He's a great guy. He should finish strong. Like, this is not a hit piece by any stretch of the imagination. It's a simple acknowledgement that the man at 81 years old is the oldest president we've ever had, will be the oldest presidential candidate we've ever had, and that most of the public, including a majority of Democrats in your own party, think that that's a concern. At the same time, that he's polling so horribly—not just in general election polls, which are bad enough, but in the specific states that he needs to win—at some time, at times down ten points to Donald Trump, who, as liberals love to announce, is a been indicted dozens and dozens of times and just is facing a multi-million dollar judgment out of New York and has all of these problems. And even that isn't hurting him as much as the fact that Joe Biden is perceived to be incompetent
0: yeah. to serve. I was reading a, a Nate Silver uh, substack piece yeah. on this subject, and he was saying, like, look, okay, you know, a year ago, you could have made the case, well, the polls, it's too far out for them to have any predictive power, yeah. and um, the economy's bad, but his numbers could improve once, uh, once that turns around. But now... Now they are predictive. It's close enough that they do have some. You can read something into yeah. them. The improving economy hasn't really changed the direction of his polls. And and before you could say, well, it's it's not clear. It's him versus Trump, even though it is going to be him versus Trump. So it's you know it's kind of muddled where people's thinking are. Now everybody kind of understands that, and these polls do carry more weight. Um, look, obviously it's. Too late, unfortunately, to run a primary process the proper way, where you actually have a competitive field of alternate candidates. And then if Biden wins, fine—that's that's what happened. But they, they didn't do that at all. They yeah. did no debates. They did not. They did not. The DNC did not facilitate an actual process. So now they're in the position, and that's what Ezra Klein ultimately gets to in his column, where the one way out of this—so Joe, so there's no way out unless Joe Biden steps aside. He has to decline to run again at the convention. And then that whole, the, you know, the way uh, presidential candidates were picked for a hundred years comes back into play. Not, yeah. not since the, uh, not since the '60s has this been the method, but they could still do that,
1: which presents its own problems. Insofar as it's very, it can be a very undemocratic process in a context where a lot of people are already feeling hurt by the undemocratic nature of this primary process, the DNC asserting that there will be no primary, the media blackout of any other insurgent candidate, whether it's a Dean Phillips or a Marion Williamson or any of these third-party RFK Jr. who literally had to leave the Democratic Party because he felt he was being blacked out in such a holistic way. Yeah. So here we are. I just want to note again, Ezra Klein opens this piece, this piece that the Biden administration is melting down over by saying, My heart breaks a little bit for Joe Biden. (laughs) It's really the nicest, softest touch you can imagine for a piece like this. And still, knives are out for the
0: New York Times. Of course. All right, we will continue to monitor this situation, and we'll have more rising right after this. Senator Bernie Sanders was interviewed by Ash Sarkar of Novara Media on whether Israel's actions constitute a genocide. And here is what he had to say. In your view, is what Israel is doing in Gaza a genocide?
2: In my view, it is absolutely disgraceful, horrible, and I'm doing, as a United States Senate, senator, everything I can to end it. And where I'm sitting is, and I don't know how many people know this, Every year, the United States provides about $3.5 billion in military aid to Israel. On top of that, there is a bill. I was supposed to be here earlier. I was, couldn't come because a bill came up for not just all for Israel, $95 billion, including $14 billion for Israel. And I have led the opposition to that. I do not want to see the United States complicit in what Netanyahu and his right wing lunatic friends are doing right now to the Palestinian people. So my job right now is to support what the United Nations is trying to do, have a humanitarian ceasefire, see if we can get the humanitarian aid immediately in there, uh, and work out as complex and difficult as it is some type of long-term solution to what's going on there.
0: Now, American statesmen so far firmly refusing to call the war in Gaza a genocide. Brianna here had the chance to interview Democratic candidate Dean Phillips the other day on her podcast. Here's some of that.
3: But Israel has been attacked since the day it was established by the free world after the Holocaust. It was attacked by its neighbors and they survived. That's like, and they-
1: saying, that's like saying that American settlers were attacked by Native Americans because they were white or because they were Christian. Oh, boy.
3: Boy, Rihanna, holy, it's moly, just, boy! I'm just I'm histor- telling it's... you, I'm, um, I, I'm just, I got to tell you, it, I'm, I'm, I'm expressing empathy for Palestinians, for Muslims, for Black Americans. I just, I'm not feeling what um, I, I'm surprised to be honest with you, and I'm offended.
1: What is surprising about this, Representative? The, I'm just surprised. The, I'm surprised we, by we, the lack. Of, know... I just
3: explained it. I'm surprised by the lack of empathy of progressives relative to the Jewish people.
1: Meanwhile, during arguments made at the ICJ over accusations of Israeli genocide, Palestinian ambassador to the U.N., Rian Mansour, held back tears during an emotional speech begging for an end to Israel's genocide in the region. Let's take a look.
4: To guide us towards a future in which Palestinian children are treated as children. not as demographic threat in which the identity of the group to which we belong does not diminish the human rights to which we are all entitled a future in which no Palestinian and no Israelis is killed a future in which two states live side by side in peace and security. The Palestinian only people only demand respect for their rights. They ask for nothing more. They cannot accept nothing less and nothing else.
1: I now, mean, wasn't the only one who begged the court to do something about the situation in Gaza. Peter Andreas Stemmet, representing South Africa's legal team, urged the court to use the example of his own country's illegal occupation of Namibia with the current situation in Gaza. Let's, let's look.
4: Mr. President, members of the court, Israel's total disdain and their disrespect for these principles result in the occupation being inherently and fundamentally illegal in terms of international law just as South Africa's prolonged presence in Namibia was found by this court to be illegal.
1: Let's start with the Bernie clip up top. Now, I think the most viral aspect of that clip, we didn't necessarily play, and it's when Ash asks Bernie, three different times if he would describe what's going on in Gaza as a genocide. And he declined to answer. He asked her repeatedly, she asked him rather repeatedly, if he would support uh, economic, cultural, or sporting boycotts against Israel. And he says he's skeptical of those. And then she asked a really great follow-up saying, well, were you similarly skeptical of boycotts against South Africa that were so instrumental in ending apartheid there? And he gives a sort of meandering, unsatisfying answer. And others pointed out that he has supported uh, sanctions, economic sanctions and boycotts in other kinds of countries, Venezuela, Russia, North Korea, he's voted for them all. But there does seem to be this kind of exceptionalism in place when it comes to Israel, and given that. To Bernie's point, he has been doing so much more than other people in Congress. He has tried to get America to follow its own laws, restricting aid to countries that are enacting humanitarian abuses. All of these things make it almost more frustrating and more bizarre that he won't go that extra length to being open to even entertaining the word genocide or following the same sorts of, or using the same kind of tools that he has endorsed using in other contexts to try to bring a country into compliance with international law.
0: This is going to be an interesting day as you criticize Bernie, and I guess I defend him. (laughs) Um, Look, he's taking what are, in my view and in your view as well, based on what you said, the correct um, votes in terms of giving, uh, in, in terms of, Hopefully, reining in the amount of just unlimited foreign aid we give to Israel and other countries. That's you know he's not a he's not a leader of a of a of a social movement or an He's a legislator. And at the end of the day, when he if he's taking the right votes, and I agree with him on this, I too find I think the actually describing it as a genocide has not been has not actually been proven. Uh, It's clearly very fraught and divisive. I would describe it as a war between a state and a terrorist group that acts as a sort of de facto head of state for the region it controls, in which there has been massive civilian casualties. Maybe you don't see any distinction, and that's fine, and I'm, you know, entertaining and listening to your arguments. At the end of the day, it seems much less important for me—to me, for Bernie Sanders to endorse your view or Ash's view of what's actually going on if—again, if—and, in fact, if not doing that gives him more license to actually lead an effort to stop sending American tax dollars overseas to every other country, it seems like that's fine to me.
1: Well, for one, I don't know that there's a connection between those two things, whether or not he says his magic word and his ability to take the votes that he's taken, most of which are unsuccessful because he represents a real minority in Congress. But to your broader point, I'd agree. I don't think he needs to say, I know conclusively under the law that this is definitionally genocide. I don't know that he is actually in a position to be able to say that. What we do know is maybe not Bernie, but many, many, many other members of Congress have been very willing to use that word. And an extra legal context when talking about Ukraine or other countries, very quick to say that's a genocide there. And moreover, I don't think the, the ask is that Bernie say, I know because I got a law degree that this is genocide, but to say the ICJ has said that there's a plausible case of genocide here in Israel. We need to take this very seriously, and we need to be acting toward Israel like we would toward any other state that had been charged with such serious crimes. Moreover, we don't need this genocide assessment in order to um, uh, have 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 a viewpoint as to whether or not things like sanctions are appropriate, things like boycotts are appropriate. And it does feel like he's very specifically trying to tiptoe around being associated with the BDS movement, which has been so politically polarized, even made illegal in some parts of the United States of America in a way that is a significant infringement on speech. And that's what's driving his his choice of words there as opposed to any principle.
0: Yeah, I, I wouldn't describe Russia's actions toward Ukraine as genocidal either. They're about territorial conquest. They're, it's, um, it's a pretty straightforward war between nation states where they're trying to claim more territory. Again, that's not to like, lessen the badness of it. it. It was illegal and wrong for them to do that. It's resulted in tons of human suffering. So, too, has ongoing conflict between Israelis and Palestinians, and, you know, I hope all of these conflicts are resolved, and that the, the role of the U.S. should be to work toward resolution in both cases. It seems like that has that's not the role we're serving. Our current government is serving in, in terms of both conflicts, because we're now we're not happy with Netanyahu's doing, apparently, but we continue to give them unlimited funding. And we seem to have scuttled potential negotiations early on between Ukraine and Russia. And now, even though we're not really willing, necessarily, to give them more funding, we, we're kind of, you know, leaving that ambiguous because Biden would certainly like to give them more funding. He's just hamstrung from doing it because Republicans aren't willing to go along with it. Um, so any, anyway, all, I, I expect from my legislators to be more protective of U.S. national security interests more protective of taxpayer funding, more skeptical that sending more money abroad or financing wars in other parts of the world is in the best interests of the people there or our own best interests. So as long as you know people are do I-, I wish more legislators would take that position, would follow the examples of Bernie Sanders and also a handful of Republicans who have taken similar positions. Um, many more of them on Ukraine, fewer on Israel, unfortunately. But um, there we have it. Uh,
1: to to. You know, take this a little bit, a bit to the Dean Phillips conversation. One thing I think that came out in some of Bernie's remarks and Dean Phillips' remarks is as a trend toward focusing on Netanyahu as a unique bad actor in Israel, a lot of liberal, what might be described as liberal Zionists, say, I agree that there's a humanitarian crisis. I agree that um, Israel is over the top, to use uh, Joe Biden's words. Uh, in its actions, but they largely place the blame on Netanyahu's right-wing government and say things like, I hope the people of Israel stand up and vote him out and choose to behave differently going forward. Um, But that does seem to be a way to sidestep a substantive issue that we got into in a a really spicy and, I think, useful debate for people to go and watch. um, Where we had—I think we got to the fundamental question of— Dean Phillips brought up the horrors of the Holocaust and the experience of the loss of six million Jewish people as a kind of grounds for why there is a legitimacy to needing a safe space in the state of Israel. And when I put the question, I put the following question to him, why should that state be in Palestine? Why should Palestinians who had nothing to do with the Holocaust, who had nothing to do with the anti-Semitism that precluded Jewish people from immigrating to America and other parts of Europe at the time, and shortly thereafter, be the ones that have to pay the cost for this legitimate and horrific historical experience. And that's where we kind of came at loggerheads and the conversation really escalated. And in fact, he ended up ending the interview prematurely. He said he had um, some tasks to engage with and that he would come back to the show. We'll see if that's ultimately true. but. I, I highly recommend people go and listen to that interview in full over on Bad Faith because it really does, I think, provide a, an example of what liberal Zionist kind of maneuvering is. And if you are someone who is more ideologically committed to the idea of a Palestinian state, I think it's useful to be able to track the kind of rhetorical moves that end up happening that make a, it seem like a much more humane approach to the issue without fundamentally giving full rights. Um, and privileges to Palestinians that are being
0: extended to Israelis and everybody else who has a state in the world. Maybe Dean Phillips can wrap up this conversation on our show. Yeah, that would be great. More Rising right after this. In the days following the death and potential murder of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, America's political leaders weighed in on who was responsible and what the next steps should be. Former President Trump weighed in on Truth Social, writing, quote, The sudden death of Alexei Navalny has made me more and more aware of what is happening in our country. It is a slow, steady progression, with crooked, radical left politicians, prosecutors, and judges." leading us down a path to destruction, open borders, rigged elections, and grossly unfair courtroom decisions are destroying America. We are a nation in decline, a failing nation. Trump's critics were quick to note that the former president neglected to mention Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, and the one many have accused of having Navalny killed. Trump's rival for the GOP nomination, Nikki Haley, responded to Trump, writing, quote, Donald Trump could have condemned Vladimir Putin for being a murderous thug, Trump could have praised Navalny's courage. Instead, he stole a page from Liberals' playbook denouncing America and comparing our country to Russia. The mainstream
1: media seems to have a different villain in in mind for who's responsible for Navalny's death. House Republicans, during a quick press gaggle outside of Marine One, CNN's uh, J... And Jay Lee asked the president if he would, quote, say that Alexei Navalny's blood is on the hands of House Republicans right now, to which Biden said he wouldn't go that far, but encouraged the House to take up funding legislation for Ukraine and stop using anti-NATO rhetoric. Vice President Kamala Harris, speaking at a security conference in Munich, was quick to lay the blame for Navalny's death at Putin's feet. Here's Harris.
2: We've all just received reports that Alexei Navalny has died in Russia. This is, of course, terrible news, which we are working to confirm. My prayers are with his family, including his wife, Yulia, who is with us today.
0: And if confirmed, this would be a further sign of Putin's brutality. Whatever story they tell, let us be clear, Russia is responsible. And we will have more to
2: say on this later.
1: But not everyone saw Navalny as a scion for a new, glorious Mother Russia. Our next guest conducted interviews with two Russian leftists who described Navalny as a representative of a different faction of the Russian elite who backs continued neoliberal policies and aligns with destabilizing NATO-backed actors. Here to discuss Navalny and what his death means is host of the show Pushback on the Gray Zone, Aaron Maté. Thank you so much for being with us today. Good to be here. Now, I saw a lot of different takes going in different directions. I saw some leftists frustrated with Cornell West, for example, for um, offering uh, condolences that seemed to uh, validate the politics of the man outside of just the value of an individual human life. So I wanted to get your take on who he was, and then we can get into maybe what the likelihood of him having been murdered by Putin actually was, what the evidence is there, and so forth and so on.
3: Well, I think the critique of Dr. Cornell West's uh, remembrance of Navalny stemmed from the fact that Cornell West sort of compared Navalny to people like Mamiya Abu-Jamal, uh, which is not really a fair comparison when you have Navalny in his past espousing openly racist and xenophobic views. There was a time when he compared Muslim immigrants to uh, insects and called for them to be expelled. Now, his supporters will claim that since then, he's undergone an evolution, but I actually didn't see much evidence for that. He was given opportunities to apologize and he didn't take them. And the fact that he was celebrated in the West as this beacon of democracy speaks to me, uh, not so much as a celebration of his uh, values, although he was very courageous. He came back to Russia knowing he would face imprisonment, which was very brave, but because he collaborated with the West and he was useful to US goals of destabilizing Russia and trying to install a new leader to replace Vladimir Putin. So Navalny's death, of course, is a tragedy. Uh, He was undoubtedly mistreated and uh, oppressed inside the Russian system. But we're seeing him being held up as a hero because he served U.S. goals. He collaborated with Western institutions uh, and he was useful to the goal of regime changing Russia. which as we're seeing in the proxy war in Ukraine, is the U.S. goal.
0: Well, sure. I mean, I would say that you know, regime change through conflict with Russia is not something we want and is you know, not a realistic goal, and I don't support any more funding for Ukraine for that reason. I mean, it's one thing to you know, support regime change through kind of illicit CIA-type deals, I mean, in this case, to the extent it's supporting regime change, isn't it just supporting, you know, someone who was who who wanted the Russian system to be more democratic, wanted to use what remained of the democratic system within Russia to to oppose Putin, someone who was who was poisoned. I, <laughs> it's it's very much, I think, established poisoned by Russian forces by Putin. Um, I, I tend not to doubt that he was killed on uh, on Vladimir Putin's orders. Um, is that not, you know, is that not worth, not from an interfering sort of in Russian standpoint, but in a, well, it would be better if Russia had an actual democracy and someone could run against Vladimir Putin, the people could decide something Putin himself has, you know, utterly prevented from happening in this country. And and that's why it's a hero, he's a hero, not really for his specific politics or the things that he said, which I don't, you know, doubt your evaluation of them is accurate.
3: Well, a few points. Uh... There's no doubt that Russia is autocratic, but note how we don't see people in Russia who oppose Putin, who come from the left or who are in the Communist Party or who are anti-war, they don't get nearly the same amount of coverage that Navalny does. We have to ask ourselves why, what's the key difference? The key difference is that Navalny collaborates with Western governments. He collaborated with a group called Bellingcat, which is funded by a series of Western governments and contractors that profit off of Western governments uh foreign wars abroad uh his he founded a group democratic alternative that has received funding from the national endowment for democracy which funds regime change efforts abroad that to me is the key difference there are plenty of dissidents inside russia who don't get nearly the amount of attention that navalny did and i think that explains that simply like the reason why is because these groups aren't trying to collaborate with the west in the west's own goals of destabilizing russia In terms of all the things that happened to Navalny, you know, I do actually have some questions. Uh, The poisoning to me, the official story there never made any sense. We're supposed to believe that Russia tried to poison Navalny with Novichok. Somehow it didn't kill him, even though this is one of the most powerful nerve agents in the world. Russia then, after allegedly trying to kill him, then lets him leave rather than kills him as as he's receiving medical attention. He goes to Germany. After that, it's the CIA and British intelligence that immediately supply the German government with the purported evidence that proves Russia's involvement in his attempted murder, which raises questions for me. What is the CIA doing uh, tracking this so closely, and how are they so sure that they have the proof? I mean, this is suspicious, especially when Navalny is meanwhile collaborating with Western-funded groups, including Bellingcat, who he then works with to produce videos that uh, finger Russia in his attempted assassination. And then he goes back to Russia and gets imprisoned and um, all this just raises questions to me. So no I don't accept the official story and I think certainly there has to be a, a credible international investigation of what happened here. I don't rule out the possibility that he was killed by the Russian government. Anything is possible. But I don't accept the US government's assertion that this is the case just on faith. There needs to be credible independent investigations of this.
1: And just as a last question here, you heard Donald Trump's response to this, which liberals pushed back again, saying that it doesn't point the finger or even raise any implication that it could have been uh, Russia or that Navalny was a victim of uh, uh, Russian authoritarianism or an autocratic regime, as you described it. Oh, do, do you read that same implication into Trump's remarks? And, and what do you make of him basically saying, it reminds me of, of how bad America is right now? What does one have to do with the other?
3: Well, you know, Trump naturally made this about himself because he's a narcissist, so that wasn't surprising. But again, Trump is being held up right now as the villain in this whole disaster over the Ukraine proxy war because House Republicans are refusing to give Joe Biden at least right now another 61 billion dollars to prolong this war. And so naturally because Trump and Russia are blamed for everything in the US which has been the playbook since 2016, the Biden administration is trying to somehow uh make Trump the the villain here too. And really the Biden administration is the one that chose to abandon all diplomatic opportunities and chose to you and chose to use Ukraine to bleed Russia which remains the policy today. And now they're desperate for a $61 billion lifeline to prolong this war. So undoubtedly, they're gonna try to use all the uh, villains they can, including Trump and Putin, and try to make Navalny now some sort of symbol for why the proxy war should continue. And one more point on this. Just note, there's a chorus of people inside the US across both political parties on cable TV, crying about Navalny's death and claiming they care about the right of uh, dissidents to stand up to uh, governments. Well, meanwhile, what is happening in the US it's, as we're speaking, Julian Assange is facing uh, his last-ditch effort to avoid extradition to the U.S., where he faces life in prison uh, for what? Revealing U.S. state crimes. There's also been zero word said about Gonzalo Lira, who was a U.S. citizen in prison inside Ukraine for criticizing the Ukrainian government. He recently passed away in Ukrainian custody. So none of these people who claim to care about the right of dissent, and the right of people to speak out against illegitimate governments or, or, or uh, authoritarian governments have said a word about Julian Assange or Gonzalo Lira. And that speaks to a profound hypocrisy that needs to be called out. Mm.
0: I think you're certainly right about the selective outrage when uh, when political prisoners are held, when free speech is not followed, when political opposition is uh, is treated in, in, in such a matter. Um, so the point should be you know, not to, disparage Navalny or or say that there was, which I'm not accusing you of doing, obviously, of saying that that was okay and should be ignored, but to also look to our own allies and our own government when they are engaged in political repression. Um, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Good to be here, thanks for having me.
0: Georgia Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis accepted a Black History Achievement Award through the Atlanta Berian Church two days after appearing in court, where she was questioned by lawyers about her relationship with Prosecutor Nathan Wade, who's also involved in the Georgia case against former President Donald Trump.
1: During her acceptance speech, Willis recited scripture and asked the following of her audience, my only request from this family today is: This is a really hard job, and I'm trying to. I'm, I'm trying to do, and I am an imperfect human being, but I can literally feel the people who love me's prayers. If just every now and again you'll throw my name in a prayer, God hears His children. So I thank you for this honor today.
0: There was also some new reporting in a couple outlets, um, CNN and other places, about cash payments she had made. So recall that. Um, so she's in this romantic relationship with Nathan Wade, and part of the allegations of impropriety are that well, she's so she's paying him, and then he's taking her on these trips. But he said, and he paid for the trips, uh, but he's saying that um, he he reimbursed her through she was reimbursed with cash, so that's why there's no record of it. Um, there it is apparently the case that she does pay for stuff in cash, <laughs> large amounts of cash. There's a Uh, testimony from a winery owner that they both visited and where they they enjoyed a wine tasting and she paid for it with um, a couple hundred dollars in cash and he was he remembered it because it is not often that people pay you know for a large meal or something in cash that way so
1: yeah people are pretty insistent and i cannot speak to this this is not my personal experience as a black person But some folks have been very insistent that this is a black cultural practice to keep more cash on hand. And there's a certain logic that tracks. There has been a historical distrust of banks for very good reasons, uh, Black Wall Street, Tulsa Massacre, all these, uh, you know, less... Flashy historical examples um, that I think would give rise to a population having a cultural tendency to keep more cash on hand and pay for more in cash. And certainly, Fannie Willis's father testified that he advised his daughter to do the same to protect herself on dates and in a romantic context, in particular. In particular, so that might be true. Yeah. The problem is that even that seems to be a, a sort of. Um, just bad optics for someone who, again, is prosecuting such a high-profile case to hire someone who, this is in dispute, but is allegedly was allegedly at the time in a romantic relationship with her. She says the relationship didn't start afterward. There was testimony that it started Friends before. It did, yeah. Um, uh, but if you know that the optics are such that it looks like you hired him for a job that pays him a lot of money so that he could pay for you to go on trips that you then don't have to pay for with your own money, that you would want to have some record of reimbursements precisely so that you do not get accused of what you're being accused of now. And maybe that's unfair to say you should have anticipated that there was going to be a probe of this nature. But honestly, you're prosecuting the most high profile case in the country against a notoriously litigious presidential candidate in Donald Trump you know that they're gonna dig up dirt, whatever dirt they can find, and you know there's impropriety in the nature of your relationship in this employment dynamic in the first place. To not want to CYA, as they say, and cover your tuckus by having some kind of receipt structure um, maybe try using Venmo, even if you have a, a, a cultural tendency to cash, would it kill you to, to Venmo each other so at least there was some kind of record? And the absence of that record, I'm afraid, still does raise some implications that you were intentionally trying to fudge the numbers here so that there can be something akin to a kickback scheme.
0: Right. I read uh, this really good piece in The Atlantic from Richard Painter, who's Mm. about, you know, as anti-Trump, a public figure, as you can find, and a public figure and writer. And, you know, he points out, look, it's just in the overwhelming majority of workplaces, once you, a supervisor or a boss, begin a romantic relationship with a subordinate, with someone who's Whose payments you're signing off on—that has to be the end of the professional relationship. You can't be in that. That's not something that's just tolerated in the. Or at
1: least you generally. have to disclose it you so disclose that. Disclose
0: it so that somebody else can be in charge, can be facilitating that aspect of it. You yeah. have to Resign from public service, but to continue in that way, not be forthright about it, and then be and then you know have him in this role, him and uh, again a seemingly inexperienced choice right. to handle this case. Right. Makes it look very. Uh, makes it look like there's something shady going on and that's what Richard Painter says is that you know, even the appearance of impropriety is enough of a reason for recusal So she should absolutely without question be recusing herself at this point.
1: Yeah, and by the way I take the point about okay She used cash to pay for a hundred fifty dollar wine tasting. Yeah, that's a very different thing than the thousands and thousands of dollars that are being um, implicated here in this case Uh uh, Willis yeah. said she took $4,000 with her on Wade's birthday trip to Belize in March of 2023. Of that, That's she re- of reimbursed cash. him $2,500 for their hotel flights and food, she says. Um, this is reporting from the LA Times, which again, I think that the general tone of a lot of this reporting is, is that, you know, it's not the same as the conservative reporting that, that, you know, is maybe more personalizing this arguably. But the liberal reporting is just like, this is just bad judgment. It might not be illegal. It might not actually put you in a position where you're forced to recuse yourself or be replaced here, but it's, the optics are so bad and the soap opera drama of this story is so extreme. I mean, we're getting testimony about when they ended their relationship and it's because the, the only, only thing a woman can do for a man is to, is to, make my sandwich like I don't need to know (laughs) yeah this here's she testified that Wade told her the only thing a woman can do for him is make him a sandwich I don't want to know that I don't need to know any of that and what this has the effect of doing is frankly undermining her professional standing in the courtroom everybody in Atlanta, everybody in the country is going to be aware that she was in the middle of some petty interpersonal debate, and that's going to be on their mind if she stays on this case, as she's trying to prosecute a very serious case that alleges that the former president of the United States of America plotted for weeks before um, the inauguration to try to stay in office. Right. And look what we're talking about.
0: Yeah. <laughs> as you point out, it is, a, it is significant sums of money. It's not like He's alleged to have paid for her like at Olive Garden a couple times or something. We're talking about trips um, According to Richard Painter actually the payments in question are in the hundreds of thousands of dollars and actually are higher than her own Salary which does start in the territory again. We're not it's not this isn't small ball or nickel-and-dime stuff This is it could be it's a significant amount of money that he spent on her Um which, again, makes, which is the reason this relationship is under so much scrutiny. And
1: while, by the way, they weren't even publicly in a relationship, and while he was married to somebody else, I'm like, what kind of what kind of dating advice should I be getting from her to get people to drop that much money off <laughs> in a relationship? I'm like, I gotta go write some things to my boyfriend right <laughs> And then you can reach into your purse for your $200 to pay for
0: uh, the wine tasting. Right. I don't know. That seems unlikely. But, yeah. But, uh, here we are. we will continue to cover this story. more rising right after this. <music> the New York City Police Department is facing some backlash online after its dance team performed a cringy number on a local television station. Brace yourself, here it is.
1: You know I know how to make <laughs>
0: Now, some critics were concerned that the Boys and Girls in Blue are focused more on honing their dance moves than combating New York City's crime wave, as one ex-user succinctly put it, fire the NYPD dance team and hire more cops.
1: Some critics are coming from another angle, pointing out that the cringeworthy cringeworthy performance is probably taking away from needed education funding. Representative AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, quipped on X. How many school music programs got defunded for this? While another critic added, Mayor Eric Adams, cut an additional $100 million from education this year but somehow found the money for the NYPD to promote themselves with a dance team. Yeah, I saw a lot of comments that pointed out, specifically, the library closures on the weekend in New York, which are really mind-blowing. When do you go to the library? When do most people have time to go to a public library? Is actually on the weekend. And so the asymmetry in funding, not just these dance teams, but, you know, videos of cops milling around at turnstiles on their phones, those enormous um, R2-D2 style um, robots that are being put in subway stations that have to be accompanied by a cop like a like a babysitter for something that's supposed to be automated. All of these funding choices have, I think, brought Eric Adams and the NYPD under a lot of scrutiny. And this dance team, that many people pointed out, neither protects nor serves, oh, <laughs> I get it. isn't helping.
0: Yeah, um, you know, I I do like, uh, I like a good tune by Flo Rida. Um, It's a Wild Ones. That's my favorite uh, favorite Flo Rida song. Um, Yeah, look, I don't want to make fun of people, but they are public servants. And, um, you know, I think policing services are, fairly important um, in terms of actually policing, actually deterring crime. We don't want to live in a dystopian spying surveillance hellscape with uh, with uh, murder bots everywhere surveilling everyone. So this, yeah, the, the thing, the robot you're referring to just moves, what, moves through the New York transit system just recording video at all times in case they need it, which seems like a civil liberties problem because there's, I mean, I would think police, they should have probable cause before they do that kind of routine surveillance. Um, and the
1: colossal waste of money. Because, again, they, they mm-hmm. champion the idea that it only costs them $9 an hour to rent the machine. But,
0: well, it can't do anything. But it
1: has to be a company. Right. Like, from uh, during the nighttime hours, basically, they pay a human being to stand and just babysit the robot so I guess, I don't know, kids don't draw a graffiti mustache on it or something. And, and that, that cost is not being built in here. Besides which, to your point, what does the machine actually add uh, to public safety? The um, clearance rate, for crimes, uh, for murders, homicides specifically, is at an all-time low. So it doesn't seem like any of these kind of technological interventions are getting to the bottom of actually solving crime or more importantly, preventing crime from happening in the first instance. And there's ample research that shows investing in community activities for kids, young people to get involved in instead of Is, getting in trouble Isn't drawing the street. on the robot an activity
0: for kids to do?
1: <laughs> well, there's a cop there preventing them from doing that, and also they closed the library. Mm-hmm. So it just does not They can join like- the
0: dance squad. They can learn some moves. Right. I
1: mean, look, there are people who just are going to make fun of the dance squad for reasons that I wouldn't necessarily agree with, and I don't care if cops or anybody in any job in their spare time decide to have a... Social club of any sort where they get together and do what they want to do, but the idea of having the NYPD dancers come on a local television s- show and dance seems to be more about promoting and cre- promoting likability, promoting goodwill toward mm-hmm. a police office that doesn't, doesn't hasn't necessarily earned it because it has not actually improved public safety, and also because uh, Eric Adams, obviously a former police officer himself, has made the decision to push public funding toward police officers to the detriment of all of these other public services.
0: Right. I'd like them better if they actually did something about public safety, which is not as out of control in New York as it is here in our lovely city. Um, Crime in D.C., something now I think the national media everybody's starting to pay some attention to i've seen a lot of coverage recently not just um not just locally um, a lot of attention being paid to our problems which are different than new york's and uh, for a variety of reasons some of the problems we have have to do with city versus federal authority disputes over you know who is literally responsible for what chunks of the city um, our crime lab becoming decertified so in order to actually we have a low clearance rate for crimes because they actually have to ship it to a lab outside the city mm. because um, ours doesn't is not was doing such a bad job it's like it's not reliable um which you understand you got to use a reliable crime rab you know people need <laughs> have the right to uh, accurate evidence uh evidentiary standards but uh resulted in a massive backlog for working through um through crimes so
1: yeah i mean we're really looking at a homicide clearance rate that used to be uh about 90 percent um some York decades York ago uh, overall, nationally nationally and is now down around 50 percent that's crazy um and there's a uh, bunch of complex reasons for that, not all of which have to do with, um, you know, kind of uh, mm-hmm. police departments' dedication to fo- solving crimes
0: Fr- themselves. Frankly, you'd think homicide rates should, uh, clearance rates should be at an all-time high because... because of forensic
1: evidence?
0: Because of forensics evidence and because of the level of surveillance that just mm-hmm. exists out, th- not with specific police robots, yeah. but just security cameras everywhere. You know, you watch some of those old, um, you know, uh, uh, some of the documentaries on serial killers from the—you know, your your Bundys, your Dahmers, who just killed an almost incomprehensible number of people yeah. by today's standards and got away with killing, like, dozens of people over years, that could never happen. And, and, and like, Bundy was arrested multiple times and just kind of let go because nobody—because there wasn't footage of—now you would be able to cl- so closely track all these people's movements the second there was any suspicion, it would be—I think it would be incomprehensible to— Get away with that crime which is good which is good and yet we have a lot much lower clearance rates
1: yeah I, i'm a little skeptical i do think that frankly there have been some contemporary uh, serial killers that have some pretty significant body counts i feel like i saw a, a true crime thing recently about one uh man in particular but i don't want to i don't want to misquote yeah. on it but I, I take your point i take your point. i mean there's a, a a very interesting political moment that we're in right now where it doesn't seem like anyone is really in, in any political party is taking up any of the interest in um, decarceration, uh, to, uh, addressing yeah. our carceral problems. There used to be a sort of bipartisan interest in it, even under Donald Trump, where you had um, who was a Van Jones and Kim Kardashian and all of these people who were willing uh, to work with Trump to pardon people. There was a kind of um, Libertarian Republican interests in not spending as much on maintaining prison populations, in decriminalizing drugs, and at least getting the nonviolent prison population out from behind bars. And then it does seem in some weird way that the desire to push back against the George Floyd movement, which was related to that... Mm -hmm. Killed any appetite among Republicans for actually doing the thing and saving money on a municipal basis by not keeping so many people in jail for their l- rest of their lives at a cost that is similar to what it would cost to send them to a four year university every well, year.
0: Well, I wish the conversation about criminal justice reform in order to get and re- retain people on the right to support it was more focused from a, you know, this isn't a specific call out to anyone, but from an activist standpoint, keeping it about. Citizens rights and the cost is a a way to to broaden support for it rather than it becoming a really kind of identity based issue um, Was not a
1: well, it's right there it is and that's what black lives matter protesters talked about They talked about the costs and they also talked about the disproportionate racial racial impact impact um, but they also talked about the civil liberties issue. But historically, what has happened, yeah. and this works in both directions. Well, the leaders the of the movement of it, took a bunch
0: of money and well, the, hype the house. Well, the people,
1: <laughs> the people that were embraced, especially by the media, as leaders of the movement. But it was always a grassroots movement, and the choice to ignore that was also a choice that was the media were complicit in. And those people are still working hard in their communities to try to hmm. end mass incarceration and to prevent the massive civil liberties uh, violations that continue in that states of America. But while they're still working hard at it, we see that both political parties show absolutely no interest in it, even though one political party in particular holds itself out as being interested in those fundamental freedom-style issues.
0: Maybe we will deter teen crime by forcing them to join the dancing (laughs) and dance on television. (laughs) That should take care of it. More Rising right after this.
1: Well, if you've ever wondered who's in our dream blunt rotation, stick around. (laughs) But there's no curiosity, there's no question of who's in Senator Elizabeth Warren's dream blunt rotation. She recently revealed it's The Rock. Warren cited Dwayne The Rock Johnson as a key member of her rotation. Pod Save America host John Favreau asked Warren to choose four people out of a list to be in said rotation. For those not in the know, uh, Dream Blunt Rotation is a group of people you'd hypothetically like to smoke weed with because they'd be a good time. For Rogue President Joe Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, Senator Bernie Sanders, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, and Senator Ed Markey has options before mentioning The Rock, to which Warren exclaimed, oh, The Rock, I'm stopping there
0: one of the most consequential news segments we've ever produced. (laughs) Meanwhile, a new FDA report highlights its review process into marijuana that led the agency to recommend rescheduling the drug. Now, the process involved looking at hundreds of posts on social media to analyze how consumers described weed's therapeutic impact, which perhaps sounds nefarious, but I think is not as out there yeah, looking at publicly available
1: information to see if people are
0: having you know, a bad trip
1: yeah I, I guess so i mean at a certain point with the social media stuff when it's public as opposed to getting into your dms or right. using information to target you with ads or direct you on one way or another or, or shadow ban you just you know if you say something out loud <laughs> whether or not you want to use that publicly available information to make Uh, judgment about the the efficacy of medical intervention or something like that it's hard for me to get as up in arms about something like that
0: yeah and I support wildly um, rescheduling marijuana legalizing marijuana this is a substance that many people use with very little ill effect I mean again I'm a libertarian so I think it should be up to you to put whatever you want in your body Um, it does have therapeutic benefit um, for veterans it can be used as a pain treatment you know we're so concerned about opioid addiction and all of those problems this is a great much safer for alternative, it's there's really no. Is it absolutely perfect? Perfectly safe for everyone? No. Some people have psychological problems when they use it. But alcohol is legal. S- tobacco is still legal in many cases. Um, these are things that again, I think they should be legal. I'm not calling for that status to change, but that are clearly far, vastly more harmful than a little bit of weed. So I am in wild support of legalization. Actually, something Biden could probably do right now that would make him more popular. Even Republicans think, at least a lot of Republicans think, at the very least, it should be decided on the state levels. If states want to experiment with different marijuana policies, that's fine by me. Some want to do medical marijuana. Some want to go all the way. Great. But because it's federally scheduled, technically, even when states legalize it, It falls into then this um, gray area where you could still get in trouble or arrested by the federal government, particularly if you're growing it yourself or you're selling it or something like that, um, which is not a situation we want to be in, where states have said, this is going to be our policy to allow people to experiment with more freedom. Federal government's going to swoop in and say, no, 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 we still consider this just as dangerous as heroin. I mean, it's ludicrous, but that's how the federal government approach to drugs works.
1: Yeah, this was a big issue in Joe Biden's campaign, and this is one of those promises made, no promises kept uh, moments. It does seem like despite uh, uh, decriminalization um, and descheduling being such popular issues in the country um, with bipartisan support, Joe Biden seems to have um, some kind of personal issue with this in in particular, so much so that, remember, early in his campaign, there was a bit of controversy when five staffers were fired, and I think a bunch more were implicated, uh, because they admitted to le- legally using marijuana on their uh, employment mm-hmm. forms, thinking that they were working for a president who said he was committed to deschedule these drugs uh, and decriminalize these drugs, and they were um, kind of hoisted by their own petard there. Uh, the 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 Daily Beast reported at, at the time that the policy even affected staffers whose marijuana use was exclusive to one of the 14 states in the District of Columbia where cannabis is legal. Understandably, many Biden staffers live and work in Washington, D.C. where cannabis yeah. is legal, and yet they were still fired from their jobs That's by the Biden administration outrageous. in contravention of the policies that he said he was going to run on.
0: That's why it kind of annoys me when like politicians even joke about their dream yes. blonde rotation. And, you know, Elizabeth Warren, <laughs> I disagree with her on a lot of things. She does support full. Decriminalization of marijuana, good for her. Glad she does. Wish she would do more to, you know, manifest that policy into existence. But I guess if she jokes about it for that reason, it's fine. But she included, you know, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in her her dream blunt rotation. Are they going to have her arrested? Well, <laughs> in all fairness, so it
1: was it was Favreau who gave her options for who was going to okay. be in the could be in her well, rotation, right. and the options included Biden, Kamala, Bernie Sanders, Janet Yellen. And Ed Markey, like, given that, those as options, I, too, would probably have said The Rock. Why did
0: Janet Yellen <laughs> get thrown in there? What's uh, Ooh, no. you know, a little bit of a, I guess because a party animal that we're missing out Elizabeth
1: Warren's uh, oh, consumer finance. finance yeah, I, I, I guess that makes sense. And I can imagine very clearly that she would want to have a, have a social event of any kind with Bernie Sanders after the kinds of accusations that she levied against him at the end of the 2020 campaign, yeah. accusing him of... Deep-seated sexism and a belief that a woman can never be president, of the United States of America. Don't know that you can put that into, back into the bag and um, uh, have a
0: maybe. They need a little bit, bit of weed and <laughs> they can
1: work it out. You know, maybe maybe that is the case. But I completely agree with you. It's a
0: good it's a good opportunity. It's a good uh, way to apologize for something. <laughs> is under the influence of just a little bit of weed. I, I I don't know. Just you know what I hear.
1: I yeah. I don't. I I I, I really wouldn't know. But I I think that. <laughs> You know, these things are frustrating. These kind of joking questions are frustrating because this should be, I mean, it's a podcast, whatever, but it is also people who are holding themselves out as doing journalism. And journalism would be pressing uh, Elizabeth Warren on why she has not been critical of the Biden administration for not following through on the campaign promises in this regard. Biden was elected in the middle of a... Multi-million-person protest movement, the largest in American history, around decriminalization and issues of over-policing, uh, and now these years later, Biden gets elected, the movement goes away, and everyone just sits around joking about their dream blunt rotation. When millions of Americans are sitting in prison for doing exactly that, smoking
0: weed. It just seems like such an easy-winning issue because there is some opposition to doing it, but it's not—it's—it's a—it's not. It's, it's, uh, it's not- Substantial. Again, it's a mixed Republican issue. There are a lot of Republicans who support at least, like, a state's rights approach to it. You could easily change the federal approach without— we, 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 it, I mean, that would be a win, that uh, would make young people really happy, it would make progressives happy. Um, it would make a lot of Republicans happy too, frankly. This is something that—veterans uh, groups are in support of this. Um, frankly, police groups—I've talked to police groups that are in support of this yeah. because they think having to waste time busting people for marijuana is a waste of their resources. To, to
1: your point, the ACLU did a report that showed that there were 8.2 million marijuana arrests between 2001 and 2010. were for simply having marijuana. Not sales, not some drug kingpin, just Mm -hmm. having marijuana. I actually had the experience yesterday, I was uh, walking back home from the grocery store and I passed this guy who was going into his apartment and he dropped a blunt on the ground. And I had this moment of hesitation where in my head, I was like, oh, this is illegal. Like, I just, mm-hmm. like, I panicked. And it was like, normally I would say, hey, you dropped something, if it were your keys or a piece of paper or whatever. But I had this moment, like, oh, am I an accomplice? <laughs> like, I just have this. I froze. <laughs> so like, do I tell this it's guy? Fully, fully legal. Am, am I, like, yeah. calling him out? Yeah. Like, it was it was like a block from a weed yeah. shop. Clearly, it's like he, we were on the corner standing next to a weed shop. Um, but I I froze for, like, a millisecond. and He went into the door. And then I felt really bad. And on my way back from the grocery store, I saw that the blood was no longer there on the mm. sidewalk. So I don't know if he came back and realized. (laughs) or someone else just had Christmas come early this year
0: I think uh my dream blunt rotation would have to involve uh my former co-host on the show Ryan Grimm who is uh (laughs) I think uh who is like me quite enthusiastic about legalization and and maybe and then some
1: (laughs) I'm not that's not surprising to hear about a fish head like Ryan (laughs) all right stick around we have more rising for you up next
0: Trust the science? Well, it sure seems like the science can not always be trusted. A new terrifying report from The Guardian indicates that research credibility is at an all-time low as a rash of fake papers made their way into the academy, into prestigious journals of medicine and other categories of science. According to The Guardian, tens of thousands of bogus research papers Being published in journals in an international scandal is worsening every year. Scientists have warned medical research is being compromised, drug development hindered, and promising academic research jeopardized thanks to a global wave of sham science that is sweeping laboratories and universities. The concerns over the veracity of scientific inquiry come as a new study indicates that some concerns about vaccine-related injury may not have been all that far-fetched. Per Fox News, the largest COVID vaccine study to date by the Global Vaccine Data Network in New Zealand analyzed 99 million people who received COVID vaccinations across eight countries. The study found that the vaccine was linked to a slight increase in neurological, blood and heart-related medical conditions.
1: On the note of COVID-related maladies, new research into long COVID indicates that there may be a connection to brain damage and the disorder. Per Science Alert, analyzing 203 patients hospitalized with COVID-19 or its associated symptoms and comparing the results with 60 people without the infection, researchers noted elevated levels of four brain injury biomarkers key signs of biological change in those infected with COVID-19. What's more, two of those signs of brain injury persisted into the recovery phase, suggesting that they continue even after the COVID-19 infection has gone. So there's, which I want to start at the top of this. Well, starting just with that that last one, you know, we, when long COVID comes up on the show, there's often the critique that because of the nature of the symptoms and as you point out, the population that disproportionately seems to be complaining about long COVID, it's easy to write it off as a kind of psychological issue where people are told that they have a problem and they have a kind of a psychosomatic response and that there isn't really a there there. And what's interesting about this study is that because of that skepticism about long COVID, they specifically look for biomarkers, so like biological changes that are observable um, scientifically and recordable and measurable. And they have found a number of biomarkers associated with people who have been hospitalized with COVID and more Uh, alarmingly that at least some of those biomarkers persist after the virus has been cleared, suggesting that there could be long-term effects, aka long COVID.
0: Particularly for people who were sick enough with COVID initially to be hospitalized. I think that's, I don't have any doubt that that if you are, if you're hospitalized with COVID, that there can be long-term damage. And it's important to for scientists to evaluate what could be a potential, you know To look at potential treatments and cures and those sort of things for people who are still suffering these long-term effects I, you know, I, I don't doubt that and we need to get more information about it um, But the article we discussed at the top here is very worrisome indeed um, It looks like a lot of um, Frankly, it was a problem in a lot of other countries including China and India where? um um, young doctors trying to make careers for themselves are coming up with fake papers. There's a whole industry of writing fake papers, paper mills, that are, just, again, just utterly false, that are not valid at all, not just like exaggerated or you actually did the research and you reached the wrong conclusion, but are deliberately like made up, like you know cheating on your... Research paper in college level, yeah. take, and being accepted by prestigious journals, and then being treated as as fact. There's not enough peer review. There's not enough skepticism. This problem has been well known. Well, a slightly different problem in the in the social sciences, psychological sciences, for uh, a long time. We've heard talk about the um, um, reproducibility. A problem. Mm-hmm. It's dif- so many papers. I think some estimates are as many as fifty percent. Although that could be from a paper that's also <laughs> fraudulent. But that a, a high number of papers on social science, behavioral observation papers that are accepted for publication, um, when they subsequently try, to do a, subsequently try to do a study to reproduce the same finding, they cannot reproduce the finding at all. And a lot of those make it through. Um,
1: Yeah, Yeah, it also makes me think of the. But this
0: is even more serious. This is the harder sciences.
1: Sure. I mean, it makes me think of the case that we talked about with respect to Vivek Ramaswamy, where the allegation is that he was able to make a lot of money off of his first uh, business venture Mm -hmm. by basically following and finding an abandoned um, Alzheimer drug. His mother is a doctor that specializes in uh, geriatric disease, maybe geriatric oncology, I can't remember, um, but geriatric medicine, uh, and she basically writes a paper that suggests some potential application and promise to the drug, which did not pan out, but that enabled Vivek to remarket it as um, the next big thing and basically do a sort of a pump and dump and make a lot of money off of selling this drug that had been abandoned because research had demonstrated that it didn't actually have that much promise. So there's certainly a lot of manipulation that goes on in this industry, and there are some serious questions about how you can restore public trust in what is some legitimate science when there is so much illegitimacy out there, especially when as many people were pointing out in light of the um, reporting about the vaccine effects, how suppressed any discourse around that was earlier in the arc of this pandemic. At very least allowing there to be some level of pushback and mooting and debate of uh, these sorts of issues, I think would engender more trust in what the scientists are saying, and that taking the exact opposite approach, I think, has led people to believe that they, all they can trust is themselves or what they see on their Facebook feed, sometimes to, to really bad effect.
0: Because the way skepticism was treated by um, governmental medical health authorities during the pandemic, I just think ended up being really counterproductive. You remember Fauci's famous, I am the science, and how dare you mistrust me, you know, at a time where. He was making uh, claims about, um, about masks that have subsequently been, you know, he made several different conflicting claims about those that did not pan out being true in terms of how uh, how uh, the totally satisfactory the, lo- the lower quality masks were perfectly good. Um, remember earlier, early promises about how good the vaccines would hold up in terms of not just preventing severe disease and death and mitigating symptoms, but actually preventing the spread was uh, a line that they uh they clung to for a long time um the denial of of a of a um a, a, a uh, infection acquired immunity, um, saying that, that was no good for so, even though it became obvious that people, once they had had COVID had some level of protection akin to the level of protection you get from the vaccine, frankly, and you weren't like allowed to discuss that in polite company. And that's without, you know, getting into any of the origins of COVID stuff as well, which is some of the, that has fared the worst of all. Um, people, you know, people were demonized for having some rational skepticism. And uh, that's been that's been very damaging. Now we and we see from reports like this that there's you know every reason you can be too skeptical. You can you know reject absolutely everything because you just want to be contrarian or something. That's not healthy either. But you need to at least you know consider a variety of sources, explore which questions have you know legitimate and respected people on the other side saying, well wait a minute about this, and that's how we get a more thoughtful and more informed public.
1: I, mean, I also think that you need to have scientific literacy in the same way that some people talk about a crisis of journalism and fake news, and they think the answer is controlling what news is out there. No, I think that treating, teaching people media literacy is really important, and I think that a lot of folks um, all across the political spectrum who've wanted to control the American mind over years understand how integral education and media literacy and scientific literacy is to being able to think for yourself and push back against authoritarianism. And I've worked overtime to limit people's access to education and getting those skills. And so I would also be very skeptical of anybody who wants to ban books, make it harder for people to go and get education, make it harder for people to access materials that help them understand these kind of journals and be able to assess them on their own merits and to to have more people from different kinds of backgrounds enter into research programs to be able to do the translation work of scientific journalism, which is incredibly important.
0: Mm. Well, that does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, Brianna and I will be back to bring you the biggest news. And we can't wait to have another episode of our show. Maybe we'll do some rewatching of Heroes between now and then.
1: Oh, I like that. That's a different <laughs> relief. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while you're on the go, or now available wherever you listen to podcasts. Bye-bye. Take care.